Well, good morning again. Well, good morning again. Well, good morning again. You know, despite what you think, a preacher likes to make sure there's people with a pulse in the congregation. So that is why I do that. Well, we are going to center ourselves in God's word as an as a, uh, act of worship, but also to prepare our hearts for gathering around the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table today, as we um, remember what Jesus has done for us. And as we just sang about, that, that we really want to celebrate his grace today and remember that our God saves. That's a good reminder for all of us, no matter what we are going through, that we have a hope in heaven. And so uh, I just want to turn our, our hearts towards Nehemiah, the end of uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. And we have been going through this series called Rebuilt and Restored. And we went through the books of Esther and Ezra. And today we finish that up through the book of Nehemiah. And so it's been fruitful, I hope. Um, I don't know if you knew a lot about these Bible books as you've been here. And if you don't haven't been here, and this is your first, this is the last, you can go and listen to those messages online. We always post those, but um, just invest in God's Word. I was thinking that this morning again, how important it is to get our nose in the book of God's Word, even at times when you don't understand it. It is so important to continue to read God's Word. He does something, and as we'll learn today, when we're out of that, that's when we struggle. It is. So, Um, I want to uh, center our hearts and uh, read from, uh, there's kind of a broken up, if you will, parts of chapter 13. I'm going to kind of capture the bigger picture here, but I want to read a couple verses within, and I'll give you the background before we recite our affirmation together. This is the close of the, uh, the end of essentially Nehemiah's reforms. However, we'll notice that these people, although the reforms have been made, they have slid back into their old ways. And so the book, if you remember the Bible Project video, for some of you that watch that, it kind of ends in a weird way. It is not the fairy tale story of our lives in the way that we look at them and all was right with the world. This kind of ends as these people, they had reforms, they were rebuilt and restored, but they slid back. And so I want to look at ways that we can prevent ourselves from doing that and fall on God's grace when we do that. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to skip from... Um, just several verses throughout the chapter, and I'll explain those along the way. So I'm going to read chapter 13, verses 6 or 7, skip down to 10, and then a few more verses. And these are ways that the people have slid back. Uh, reforms have been made. Well, this is what Nehemiah is coming back to. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king. So Nehemiah had left and come back. And came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Skipping to 10, I also found out the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Skipping to 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought up in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I warned them on the day when they sold food. Skipping ahead to verse 23, another problem. In those days I also saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. That was forbidden. And then skipping to verse 30, Nehemiah's uh, conclusion in this, Thus I cleansed them 
from everything foreign and established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. So I want to pray. Pray for us. Pray that we would learn from God's word. If you're new to Old Testament narrative, this is kind of confusing if you're jumping into the story, but hopefully we can make some sense of that as we pray and ask God for his grace and wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your word, for its truth. Thank you for how you have chosen to reveal yourself through your word. And Father, that you give us food for our souls in this book. And even at times where we have trouble understanding, you've given us the spirit to illuminate these words and to teach us and to have us apply them to our hearts. And Father, we thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, the manifestation of you, your revelation, who walked this earth. And Father, we pray that we would heed his words even in the Gospels as we look to them and we, we look to him as the fulfillment of the law, the new covenant, that we can have new life in his name, that you are the God who saves. So I pray that we would exalt him in our worship, that we would know him if we don't, and that we would know him better if we do. And we pray these things in his name. And all God's people said... So about this time, a a little fast forward to Christmas Day 2015 for me, we were on our way to my brother's house, and uh, people always joke lately with me, if you travel with me, you're in for some excitement, but last year we were on our way to my brother's house, and we had stopped at Carrie's parents, we had unloaded all this stuff, and a little bit of interesting background with my brothers, typically we've had some bad like holiday experiences, we've been late, we've misunderstood the time to get there. So this time, we knew we wanted to be on time. We didn't feed the kids, nothing like that. And so we're headed to getting on I-88 from I-39 around the bend, and we're cruising along there, and we're so excited. Man, a couple years in the past, we've been late, and we've, we've held everything up, and so we're cruising along, and I'm driving, and I'm thinking there, man, it's just, you know how your mind wanders when you drive, or maybe you don't, maybe it's just me, that, um, man, something just, like, something's off, and but I'm just driving along, going about, you know, 70, 75 miles an hour, just cruising along. And all of a sudden, on my left side here, the, the fast lane, because I'm in the slow lane, because I'm driving with Carrie, so I'm always in the slow lane. Um, that's fine. And so a guy pulls up aside me, and he's pointing. He's like, he's pointing at me. He's like, this bad, like I can see. Like, what's going on? And, and he's pointing at me. And so I, I get, like, something's wrong with my car. So I pull over. And I get out, and the front drive side tire is like on its rim. All right? So I am driving. Oh, something, something feels wrong. Yeah. And the, the drive side tire is on its rim. Christmas Day, nobody else in sight. My kids are hungry because we've intentionally said, you're not going to eat because last time we went there and we had eaten lunch and we messed up the time. And so the kids are hungry. This whole thing unfolds flat tire. It must have hit something. God's grace that I didn't notice it and like veer off the road, but it was bad. Two, three hours later, we get to my brother's, the whole thing, Christmas Day, all experience. But I had said previously, man, I've just never had a flat tire, never had to change it. So God gives you gifts when you say things like that. But see, most flat tires do not happen that way in what is considered a blowout. Most flat tires happen over a long period of time where often there is a slow leak. And that's what usually happens. And such is life spiritually. Spiritual decline is a lot like that. 
a flat tire. It's not sometimes in your spiritual life, there's a complete blowout. Something happens, tragedy strikes, but most of the time it's not like that. It's a slow decline, and that's what we've seen in the book of Nehemiah. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you've been there. You go a week without praying and being in God's word. You go a week where maybe we have our D-group Bible studies that meet every other week here. You go a week, well, it's just like something intruded in that, and I go a week of missing that, and I'm out of fellowship. You're tired by the end of the week. You stayed up late, and you watch a Badger game that was depressing. Not you guys, because you guys are here, but if you stay up late, and man, I just like sleep in a little bit, and then you miss a Sunday, and, and over time, those things develop, and you get in this pattern and you slowly pull away and decline. And although I want to remind us, tires can be like that, which results in potentially very disastrous things. Thankfully today, although it is bad news that would, that would happen, that is not true of us, that God can redeem and restore. And so as we conclude the story of Nehemiah, we're face to face with the reality of what we would call today the flat tire syndrome of God's people. They have slowly and spiritually declined back into their old ways that Nehemiah came to reform. You would think that the last chapter, again, would just close the book with this encouraging, compelling vision of what Nehemiah has done and the the temple has been rebuilt and the wall has been rebuilt and the city has been rebuilt and restored and reformed and all is well, but it's not the case. The people had spiritually declined. You remember that. This is not at all the case. And so in the last several chapters, the people have been attentive to the law. They've come back to the book. They've looked back at what God has done all throughout this narrative of human history. These are the things God has done. And so this is why we'll worship him. We'll go to him in this way. And they're restored to the the spiritual practice of discipline, much like you and I, when we get in a really good spiritual pattern, I've really, I feel connected with God. I'm in his word. I'm in fellowship. And those people have done this. They even signed a covenant in chapter 10, which we'll reference. They signed an obligation, if you will, kind of as we do sometimes. And many of us will try to do on January 1st when it comes around in 2017. I'm going to do this this year. All right, have fun at the gym for two days, and then we'll talk about other things. And so That's what they've done. They've reformed. They made a spiritual commitment. But as we read, God's people slowly learn. And Nehemiah points it out to them. You have a flat tire and they have backslidden as a nation. And that word backslide, we hear at times in the church, it means really to relapse into bad habits, relapse into the ways that you said, and maybe you've said this, I'm not going to do that again. I mean, how many of us have said that with our diet plan? How many of us said that with our, maybe the way that we overreact at times and say, I'm just going to, and you get in this pattern, but you're relapsing now into bad things. Because we are, as a people, prone to that kind of backsliding if we are not careful in the care of our reformation, allowing God to restore and rebuild. There's always going to be, hear this, always in our lives going to be a need for reformation, but there is always going to be a need for grace in the Reformation. You and I are sinful. You and I are not perfect. That's why we need Jesus. We're always going to need to reform ourselves spiritually and let God restore and transform us, but we're always going to need to remember grace because we will fail, and you will fail, and I fail, and I continue to fail, and I need to remember and rely on God's grace. The two are not mutually exclusive. So this morning, what I hope to do is what I want to look at 
chapter 13, I want to look at these things that happened in context and, and what went on there that caused the backsliding and then see what we can learn from those things as we need to understand what God did and how he could preserve those things through grace. You see, you need to understand the full gospel truth this morning to look at this clearly, to recapture it once again. And it involves two things. So often the church doesn't talk about both of them equally, the law and the gospel. The law is God's righteous ways, what he desires for us. Those are the things that he desires for you, what is best for you. He says things in his word at times that you turn your head at and you don't understand, you don't know why it has to be that way. Those are for your righteousness. He knows better, his thoughts are higher, his ways are higher, that's the law. And so his law is that we should be holy, for I am holy. That's what it says in 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy, for I am holy. That's the law. Now the Old Testament law was not being able to be fulfilled, and it couldn't be by any human because we were sinful. But that was the aim still. It doesn't negate the aim. And if you aren't able to keep the law, the result is death. Because God is holy, he needs to judge and punish sin. And so if you couldn't keep that, be holy for I am holy, which you and I as sinful people, as terrible people, cannot keep, the result is death. He is holy and something bad is going to happen. That's bad news because none of us can keep the law. James 2.10, probably one of my favorite Awana verses that the kids say. But whoever fails to keep the whole law, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So that means this. If you're here today and you think, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty well. I am holy. One thing diminishes that, makes it all unravel. So you can do all these good things And you can stand on your holy soapbox and one little thing, probably the idea that you think you're holy, that's enough of a little thing, diminishes it all and and makes you need Jesus, who was the only one. But that's the gospel. The bad news is the law. We could never meet it. The gospel, the good news, is that although we could not fulfill the law, God saves. He sent a Savior who could and lived perfectly, and Jesus lived righteously, and then by his grace, substituted his life for the punishment of our sin. We who were to be punished, he substitutes that, and in faith, we trust him as our atoning substitute. You know, I just, we did the Jesse Tree thing with our kids, and we started with Genesis and the apple, and we talked about original sin and God's grace, and we looked at God's grace, and then we went back And the next one is Noah and the ark. And we did that thing. And I was just reminded, as the the curriculum said, and as we talked about, sin always needs death as a punishment. And that's why we celebrate today. Sin will always need death. That's why we celebrate and remember Jesus' death, because it's what sets us free. It atones for all this law that we could not keep. And we trust him by faith. The life that God intended for us at the very beginning is possible in Christ as he Reminds us in Romans 3.23, we see law and gospel for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that can't keep the law and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we see the law and gospel on display. Although we have fallen short, you and I who have faith in Christ have been justified by our faith through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. That is the blood that washes and that grace when experiences experience causes us to see how much of a gift we've been giving, and and that transforms our lives. We understand what God has done so much so that I want to agree with John Piper when he says it this way. For all the times we have chosen sin 
over holiness, we deserve to be sealed up in darkness forever. If you see any light by grace, seize it. For all the times you and I have chosen sin over holiness, we deserve to be sealed up in darkness. If you see any light by grace, seize it. Grab a hold of it. That is for all of us today. We deserve to be sealed up in darkness forever. The wages of sin is death, but because of Christ and because of the Holy Spirit, we are able as a people to see the light of grace. And you here today are all able to see that if you look to God and his word for it. And I hope to remind us today that if we place our faith and trust in Christ, we see the grace, we can seize it. And I should note that I don't believe that you can really see grace, and I don't believe that you can really see grace unless you have seen your sin and the law first. And some of us haven't done that. I don't believe that you can really see grace fully until you have seen how you have not met the law. And that is your your amount of holy living, your trying to. Many of us love the grace, but you need to see first that I just have failed God and fallen short. Your heart needs to see that. And until that happens, I don't think you fully understand grace. So if that be you today, then you need to repent and turn towards Jesus. The fact is we should desire and pursue a holy living, and that should be the aim. And that was the aim of Nehemiah's reforms in chapter 13. But it resulted for the people in many failures. And for that, it also in our own life results in many failures and flat tires. And for those things, we need Jesus. And I'll continue to need to see the light of grace. So here's what I want to do in chapter 13. I'm going to take us back to those verses we wrote and, or, or we written for us and looked at. We read them. And I want to point out some things that we can learn from this. Now, at the end of chapter 12, Nehemiah has returned to Persia. And you remember in chapter 1 how Nehemiah requests the king. He goes before him and he says, hey, can you supply the funds? I have a need. I want to go rebuild the, build the wall. And he does that, constructs the walls. And then he takes a short sabbatical for 12 years. Don't know how exactly you know, long that was, but he finds himself appointed governor, and it records how he neutralized the opposition, he organized the people, rebuilt the wall, rebuilt the infrastructure, the celebration of the dedication of the wall, and he returns, and we see this in verse 6, he returns, and Nehemiah, see, he's kind of on like a government pension, if you will, so he's kind of like entering into retirement, and he's hoping that all is right with the reforms here. And he leaves, and he wants to be, go back to Jerusalem and, of course, be buried in the city of his fathers. And he leaves in 1243, at the end of chapter 12, you hear this, at the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away in Jerusalem. That's what he left. As if God's church in seasons of real, you know, good times, man, things are just going really well. And he leaves it like that. But he finds a very different Jerusalem a few years later. Why is that? It's helpful to see the promises, the four promises, the covenants that they broke, that he discovered that they broke, that they slid back in, that the tires became flat in, if you will. And these people had made four vows. And I want you to see and understand them. And hopefully, as we understand these, to continue to put air into them in our lives. First, they had pledged to submit to God's word. They had covenanted that. Second, they had vowed to live separate from the world. Third, they had vowed to keep the Sabbath holy. And fourth, they had agreed to support God's work. Now, sadly, by the time Nehemiah returned, each of these four promises had been broken. And that's what we see in chapter 13. And I want to unpack them. First is this. I want to unpack them and find light 
the light of grace in them, that we could seize that from these. The first one is the submission promise. The promises of chapter 10 begin with an affirmation of loyalty to God. They, like you and I, maybe have promised to obey God's word. I'm going to do this. I'm going to submit to God's word. And in verse 29, they promise to walk in God's laws, you see there, and observe all the commandments of the Lord. That was the promise, the covenant that they had made, that verse 29. I'm going to get back on track. I'm going to observe, observe all of God's law. I'm going to commit myself to it. Now, that's pretty clear. But in Nehemiah 13:1, at the start of our chapter, we read, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, And this is important to note. And in it, they found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, if you keep reading 13, you'll learn why this is important. Who was living in the temple? When Nehemiah comes back, Tobiah, the Ammonite, is living in the temple. They had heard that that was not allowed, and he has taken up residence in the temple. And that begs the question, how could they have allowed this to happen as a people? Obviously, they were not following the Lord's instruction. They had slidden back, and they are no longer looking to this book. Like many of us or the church today who just removes this, eventually you will start doing things that, man, I never thought I would get there. As they listened to the words of Moses, then they remembered what they had heard in the book. No Ammonites, no Moabites. And the Moabite sin, you see, if you go back and understand, why did God say that? The Moabite sin was one of, or rather the Ammonite sin was one of omission where they did not bring to the Israelites bread and water. They had failed to meet them, so God put a curse on them. The Moabite sin was one of commission. They had hired Balaam to curse down the Israelites. So one had not done something, and one had done something against God's people. And you see that in Deuteronomy 23 if you want to look for that. But the bottom line is that the Moabites and Ammonites were notorious for infiltrating Israel with bad things, evil practice, contaminating their faith. And when the Israelites heard what God's word had said, they obeyed it, right? Check out verse 13.3. It says that they had heard that, and they, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. Now, what's interesting is they had heard that, but God specifically only excluded the Moabites and Ammonites. You see what happened there? They had heard that, but then they went to this opposite side of extreme like we do at times. So they went all the way to the other side. We're just going to get rid of everything. And that's what sometimes, even in the church, you become very exclusive. We're just going to push it all out. I'm going to, this is like, I remember as a youth pastor, you'd go to like youth retreats and the kids would have a powerful experience. And the experience would be like that they would come back and burn every non-Christian CD they had and like, like remove all the pagan things from their room. And I want to say like that was maybe an overreaction to like, and this is what they're doing. All right, well, then we're pushing everything out. I'm going to go live in a cave. I'm going to go and convert to like, like, I'm not technology, like the Amish way of life. That's going to be me. And that was exaggeration of Jesus basically counseling people to go be in the world, but not be of it. And so that's what they've done here. And they've gone back and the Lord commands exclusion of some nations, but he also commands them to welcome Others, we see that in Deuteronomy 23, that he talks about the Edomites and welcoming them. For now, we just observe that they went from one extreme to another. And we must be very careful how we apply Scripture. That's our lesson here. Nehemiah 10.3 tells us what the people in Jerusalem did. It doesn't necessarily mean they did right. 
or that we should do the same. The lesson here is that you and I have to be very careful to not allow our interpretation of one passage to contradict with another. We're really good at that as God's people. To like take this thing and we love this part of the Bible, but then we don't know about this one over here. And we're choosy that way. And how do we avoid that? The same way we avoid a flat tire. We check on the car every once in a while. We read the car manual. What does the tire pressure say every time we check it? What does God's word say? As it is written, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We find that in the Gospel, Matthew, and in Deuteronomy. Let's make this very simple. The lesson we learn is this. If you are not following the teachings of Jesus, you are not following Jesus. I'll say that again. If you are not following the teachings, the word of Jesus, you are not following Jesus. So you cannot say that. If you're following the teachings, then you're following him. If you're not following those, people will say that. They will live loving Jesus apart from this book. And it is impossible because Jesus loved this book and dedicated himself to teaching it and reading from it and meditating on it and fighting temptation with it. That is why our Bible study groups are so important. That is why they complement your personal walk with the Lord. That is why that you can get together with other believers and check yourselves against the accountability of the Scriptures. That's why it's so important to gather and sit under God's teaching from week to week to week. That is why you can't have any kind of growth apart from God's Word. They help us ensure these gatherings that we are interpreting and applying Scripture correctly. Sometimes we get off base. Sometimes I get off base. That's why you need other people to come around you and say, is the word central? Are we seeing that there's unity that develops there? But at times, we like the Israelites, let's admit it, we just fall short. We break our promises. We mess up. We don't always follow what we know to be true. But here's the thing. There's light in grace, and we need to seize it. The good news is that the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. That's what it is. So if that's you, it's never too late to start taking God's word seriously. It's never too late to invest in God's word. It's never too late to join a Bible study. And we have many that meet in this church. Seize it. We need grace when we fail to submit to God's word. If you see any light by grace, seize it. The second one they broke was the separation promise. They did not live separately from the pagan nations. In verses 4 through 9, Nehemiah was horrified to find that Eliashib, who was the high priest in Israel, had basically prepared a guest room for Tobiah in the temple. And this position in the temple was able to influence everyone, and the consequences of breaking that law was huge. And so one of Eliashib's relatives was married to Sanballat's daughter. And if you remember Sanballat and Tobiah, they were golf buddies, remember? Sanbi and Toby. They had such opposition against Nehemiah in chapter 6. Those were the people that were trying to destroy, and there will be always people around you that are trying to oppose and destroy what God is doing in you. Those were those people. And he gave them the keys to the large suite of rooms in the temple where the tithes and offerings were stored. And so the offerings and tithes got pushed out, and Tobiah takes up residence, and he misuses this office, Eliashab, that he was given as a priest, And eventually this thing starts happening. And in verse 7, you see that Nehemiah calls this an evil thing that you have done. The identification of the problem demanded drastic public and immediate attention. And watch Nehemiah do what we will see Jesus do. you got to listen to this. 
later in the temple, a little righteous anger. This is Nehemiah. He's kind of crazy in chapter 13. He says it this way. And I was very angry. Yeah, you think? And they cleansed, or, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders that they be cleansed, the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Nehemiah showed him the door. Then he threw out his stereo, his couch. I mean, he cleansed the temple. Jesus, in the Gospels, you see him flipping the table over, the store, the, the money keepers and the sellers of all those goods. And he's, Nehemiah is flipping out here. He's like, I cannot believe that you've disgraced the house of God in this way. And he didn't want any trace of Tobiah's presence in the temple. Remember, church, if Satan isn't fighting your church, he's joining it. You have to remember that. If Satan is not fighting against the church, he's joining it and he's infiltrating it. And we have to be cognizant of that. Sometimes disruption happens from within. And the first separation vow they broke, they allowed this pagan unbeliever who practiced evil within their temple. And the next thing they broke was to allow mixed marriages to take place. And God had instructed that. When Nehemiah returned, he saw the men of Judah had married the women of Ashad. Again, you don't have to understand it to understand that God had said these things. He also heard their children speaking in foreign languages, which meant that they would not know how to read the law of God or participate in the temple services. All this stuff kind of spirals or slowly deflates. Their sins are damaging the home and the family. Do you not see that in our culture today? All this spiritual decline. So what does Nehemiah do? I'm going to read this. Be hopeful that I never do this to some of you. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now, if I did that, I'd be for sure in the Lake Mills Leader, if not in the Jefferson County Jail. For sure. This is what Nehemiah does when he sees it. He's so upset that he goes and he curses them. He beats them. We'll talk about the new covenant. Jesus said, turn the other cheek, all that stuff later. And he pulls out their hair. And you could say, that does not seem, I think he should be disqualified from leadership. That does not seem like the appropriate behavior for a man of God. But if you see it against the backdrop of Israel's history, his intense feelings make sense. The very sin was the primary reason that they had taken, been taken into Babylonian captivity. There was punishment and death for that. Nehemiah was pretty ticked that they had backslid in this way. That's why his grandparents had been carried off, that he is really exposed to this result of Solomon's sin in this way, that, that's, that he's seen in this way, and there's no way that Nehemiah wanted God's judgment to fall on Israel again. So he's very angry about it. Now, I'm not going to pull your hair out, I hope. But there are many times in our lives that I might confront you with something or one of the leaders in the church might confront you with something or a believer in the church might confront you with something in accountability and they might call you out on a sin. And our immediate reaction will be to, to retort and be divisive and, and not like that's coming. But there are times in our life, thank God, that we're approached, when we're approached in love and in grace, that we need that. And the goal is for repentance to happen. And there's times that when we won't submit and repent, that there is necessary to have the church come in and discipline is necessary. We don't like to talk about that because our world is so anti-authority, isn't it? 
I mean, it really is. We don't like to be challenged by government or anybody else. And that cultural implication has caused us when we read God's word or somebody, a loving brother or sister comes and says, hey, I don't know if this is the right thing in your life right now. We'll get all defensive about it because we don't like it. But there's also grace in this. That's where we need to seize this grace. When we fail to not live holy lives set apart, there's repentance that's needed. We can be restored lovingly. And Jesus welcomes us always back into fellowship with him and his people. And if this be you today, if you've wandered, know that God wants to bring you back into the fold and restore you. You can repent and come back into right fellowship today. There's hope for that. We need grace when we fail to separate. If there is any light by that grace, seize it. The third one was a support promise. And these two are a little shorter, bringing it along here. The third fractured vow was they neglected to support God's work. Their final statement in chapter 10 was that they would not neglect the house of our God. Nehemiah 10, 39. Why did ne- what did Nehemiah find? In verses 10 and 11, he essentially finds that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. And then he confronts the officials and said, why has the house of God been forsaken? So they put up Tobiah in there and they stopped giving offerings and tithes. They stopped supporting the work of the church. So he sets up a system where they could put God first in their finances again. And he stations officials at their posts. And in verse 12, we read that the people started bringing their tithes of grain, their new wine and oil into the storerooms. There was repentance and they recovered. They started supporting the church again. They renewed their commitment to put their finances, their finances, the priority of that first in the kingdom. And they put men to supervise that. And they had one thing in common, all these men that agreed to do this, they were trustworthy. So I ask you, are you trustworthy with all that God has given you to steward? You need to start to develop, or when we start to develop that flat tire, then we, we often do not, we, we don't really aim to put our treasure, if you will, first to God. And one of the first places, and this is really important, spiritually in our decline, this is really huge, one of our first areas is often with our finances when we go in spiritual decline. It really is. For where your treasure are is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says that because he knows that as your treasure, and it's just an area, that your treasure will start to determine where your heart goes. And if your treasure moves to the worldly sense, your heart's going to follow along with it. And as always, it doesn't just include your finances, but your time, your talents, all that God has given you. So does God have all of those first from you? Are you supporting the ministry gospel of the gospel first with your life? And I always refer back to this, but in Matthew 6, the passage where Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, about your food, about your clothing, about all those things. He says this, when he's saying, don't be anxious about your life, he realizes that people are freaking out. And so what does he do? He does another countercultural teaching. He says, you know what you need to do when you're being anxious and freaking out about money and all those things? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all those things will be added to you. That's countercultural teaching. When we freak out with our money, what we like to do with our tithe and offering is like, man, maybe I'll just keep this portion back because money's going to be a little tight. December 25th is coming, Christmas, all this stuff. I'm going to like hoard what God has given me, and I know I'm supposed to give to him first, or I'm supposed to seek the kingdom first, but I'm just going to keep that all together. And what Jesus does is he redirects their heart. He says, if you redirect it towards me, 
I will provide for all, for all that you need. And it makes sense for us to think like that if we think in God's kingdom. And if it doesn't make sense, it's like we're not thinking in God's kingdom terms. Now, I'm just going to confess to you right now, our, this, is an, this is a temptation in my own life right now. We have, we have car issues, and I'm thinking through those, and it's really easy for me to think about our tithe and what we give to the church and say, man, you know, I'm sure like it would be easy to do that if, if I did this. And I know it'd be wrong because I know God would slowly decline my heart towards fixing the problem myself. And personal temptation like that comes in with our finances all the time. But if there's light from the grace that we see, we need to seize it. When we fail to give God what belongs to him, we can turn towards him in grace and start new. We can redirect our hearts. And maybe that's you need to redirect your hearts towards the treasure of God with your gifts and offerings. When we need, we need grace when we fail to support the ministry of the gospel. And if you see any light by that grace, you need to seize it. The fourth and final one was the Sabbath promise. When they signed the covenant, the Israelites promised not to do business with the Gentiles on the Sabbath day. And in verses 15 through 22, he discovers that the people were not only doing business on the Sabbath, they were treating it as every other day of the week. They had broken their fourth promise by secularizing the Sabbath. Verse 16 tells us that there were men of Tyre who actually moved into Jerusalem and set up their own businesses. The leaders allowed them to operate their shops seven days a week, and Nehemiah didn't sit back and let that be ignored either. He acted firmly. He rebukes the Jews who are working on the Sabbath, much like Jesus did in the temple when he saw the money changers, and he basically flips that thing on its head. And his third step was very practical. He ordered the city gates shut down on the Sabbath and put some guards out there. He like reforms the whole thing again. He threatened those who would sell their goods on this holy day. And it's a bit hard for us to understand this one in the new covenant, the Sabbath day, because it's like, well, in the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath was Saturday. It was a holy day. Do we really practice the Sabbath today? As one of the Ten Commandments, it still is. We believe those regardless of the old law. But in keeping in line with the Testament or the New Testament teaching, we should not neglect the Sabbath in rest. We should not neglect meeting together, Hebrews 10.25, as a people of God. We should not neglect coming together. We should not forsake the assembly. And what is the point here? In demanding that the people keep their Sabbath promise, Nehemiah was emphasizing the centrality of worship, the importance of witness, the necessity of rest, and the priority of love. Loving obedience is always better than a full wallet. That's what he was saying there. And the command was not intended to be a chore. God never demands anything from us that would not be for our own good. When Nehemiah's people ignored the Sabbath, they were damaging the very fabric of the spiritual and physical and social life that God had intended. No wonder why they were heading along with a flat tire. The light of grace that we need to seize in that when we fail to set aside a day from sports and work and all this junk and business, and I'm just really busy, I need to just work again, and resting in God, we need to understand that there's hope in that. It'll be hard. You may have to let some things go when you reform that, but God will draw us in. And obviously, you are here today, so you are setting aside a day to worship. But keep in that pattern. Set your heart 
is your heart here right now? Set that pattern forth and say, I'm not going to forsake this meeting even when life gets super busy. Make God's people a priority, the worship of God corporately a priority, and abiding in Christ your rest a priority. We need grace when we fail in the Sabbath to keeping it. If you see any light by it, seize it. So as I close, I just want to ask, how can we pursue then a holy life and keep the reforms that God so desperately wants to do in us? How can we avoid a spiritual flat tire? The first in the submission promise, it's never too late to submit to God and his word. It's never too late to start taking God's word seriously and renewing your walk today. You might fail tomorrow in that, but God is gracious. Get in God's word. The separation promise, don't play around with sin, people. I've seen firsthand in a very close friend how damaging it is, and it starts really small. Don't get cozy with compromise in your life. Don't become yoked with unbelievers in that way. Remain distinct, stay holy, and get rid of anything that intrudes on that. The support promise, don't neglect your tithe, your offering to God. It's a sign that you trust God more than you trust yourself to provide for your needs. Be generous with what he's entrusted you. Be open-handed. And finally, the Sabbath promise. You know this if you showed up here today. The evil one seeks to get you off track, especially on Sundays. He'll do anything to get your mind off of worship. You need to come together. You need to be worshipful. He'll do anything in your attitude. But you need to keep the rhythm of life that God has created and used in creation to protect that day. God wants us to live purposeful lives, and he redirects us towards rest to set aside one day to focus on him. You'll need that if you want to be healthy. Friends, God wants to rebuild and restore you. And I'm thankful for the lessons of these Old Testament books that we've been through. And now we get to turn our attention towards remembering the grace that Jesus gave as he gave himself as an atoning sacrifice to us. And what a reminder it is that this is what he does in us when we turn to him in faith. He redeems, he restores, he rebuilds, he does all these things. He reforms our hearts, and we get to remember that through the Lord's Supper now. For all the times we have chosen sin over holiness, we deserve to be sealed up in darkness forever. If you see any light by grace, we seize it. Let's pray. Father, we, as we gather now to have this memorial meal, Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts now. We pray that you would focus us on you. Father, we pray that we would reflect on the good news of the gospel. And Father, maybe there are some in this room who've never heard the gospel, received the gospel. Father, again, that they would know of their sin, their inability, inability to keep the law. And that they would know that that law, the wages of that is, is death, that sin. And so, Father, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for us, that we can accept him as Lord and Savior by faith, only faith, and it's a free gift, a gracious gift to us. And, Father, that's why we gather around this table, to remember who we are as people who have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's why Jesus told us to continue to remember me in this way every time the body comes together. And so, Father, prepare our hearts that we would repent and turn to you once again, that we'd confess our sin and that we would take these things together as a people, enjoying the grace and the blood that washes us clean. And Father, we praise you and thank you. 
in the name of Jesus. I want to leave us from the last part of the scripture that was read and maybe a verse into it, as was read earlier. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Live a life of the testimony of Jesus. Have a blessed day and go in peace.